Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, so brief preamble here to outline a change to the podcast. So first off, I want to express a profound appreciation to everyone who has supported this podcast, our diligent commune team, all of the brilliant teachers and authors who have lended wisdom to it, the mission-driven brands who have provided financial support, and most of all, you, the listeners, who have helped turn this modest endeavor into a powerful platform for ideas. In my various writings and exhortations, I have been a vociferous critic of the ad revenue model, which has misaligned incentives in journalism. And while Commune's brand partners have always been in alignment with our message of well-being and sustainability, I want to try to produce this show without any advertisement. Quite simply, I think it's a better experience without ads. This doesn't change the reality that there are hard costs associated with the production of this show. And moreover, there is significant time expenditure. I am committed to helping to build a world where well-being can flourish, and I have to allocate my time accordingly in pursuit of this mission. I never want anyone's financial wherewithal to stand between them and the ability to glean wisdom from the guests on this show. So this podcast will remain free to anyone who is interested in listening to it. That being said, if you have the financial ability to support our efforts, I would be grateful if you headed over to onecommune.com support. You can contribute a few bucks or join Commune membership and get unlimited access to all of our courses. Thank you. And it's an honor to do this work. Okay, on the show today, I speak with Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is a Buddhist teacher, social justice activist, and author of the new book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. In our discussion, we unpack Lama Rod's discovery of Buddhism and how it helped him manage his depression. We discuss many of Buddhism's central tenets around the nature of suffering and the pathway out of it. We discuss his philosophy of radical dharma, and its relationship to social justice, and we discuss the nature and utility of anger itself. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lama Rod Owens. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Okay, Lama Rod Owens, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you for being here. Uh, I am excited to talk to you about your book uh, that was published, I believe, over the course of the summer, which was timely, um, entitled Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. Uh, and of course, I hope there is time to discuss the elephant in the room, the impending election. I suppose, how could we not discuss it and its relationship specifically to social justice. Um, but as a starting point, I was hoping that you could first scaffold our conversation in some 
biographical data, perhaps touching on your upbringing in the South and just kind of the unique qualities of everything that have gone into making you, you, uh, I suppose your relationship with the church and in, in your early life and perhaps elaborate on how and why you came to discover Buddhism and subsequently make it such a central component to, to your life. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the South in the American South, um, in North Georgia, um, kind of a mid-sized, smaller city. Um, it wasn't a metropolis, but we were surrounded, you know, by a fair amount of uh, rural Northwest Georgia. Um, and I grew up in church. I grew up particularly in the United Methodist Church. Uh, my mother became a minister in the church uh, when I was about 13, and that was really quite exciting. Um you know, because um, I was just so really moved and pressed by um, just someone, you know, that I was related to who um, was so, had such a strong conviction about their faith and, you know, the things that moved them and how they wanted to be in the world. And I um, was very fortunate also to to kind of be raised by her um, because she was also very open-minded uh, and you know, I would say to an extent progressive about how she understood, you know, religion, spirituality. And so I was really fortunate, you know, to, to have someone who embodied something that wasn't fundamental and conservative, which is what, you know, was often being um, expressed uh, in the community around me. My grandfather was also a, a Baptist minister, uh, my paternal grandfather, um, who I didn't really know in this life. He died um, when I was a baby, you know, I think maybe right before a year after my birth, you know, he passed. So I never knew him in life, um, but always grew up with stories about how he was such an influential person and really quite um, a gifted um, preacher, you know, so I was also really proud of that as well. You know, but having grown up around, you know, in the in, in the faith, in the community, I didn't really find myself that connected to, to Christianity. So, you know, I turned 18, um, started college, and in college, you know, Sundays become, you know, well, for me, Sundays became not so much about going to church, but trying to sleep off the hangover from Saturday night. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so that really began to break me from the habit of going to church. And that began to give me a lot of space to question and explore what I really wanted to be in the world as this, you know, I just really wasn't interested in Christianity. Um, mostly I wasn't interested because I just never, besides my mother, I just really didn't see examples of Christians having fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, well, people were having fun. No, don't get me wrong. People were having fun, but it just felt like that fun was, was about repressing things. It was like, here's the, the space that we can have fun in. And that felt like not interesting <laughs> at all mm -hmm. for me. You know, I don't want to go to a playground and be told that, okay, you can only play in this corner. In the playground. If I go to a playground, I want to play on the whole playground, you know. 
So I wanted to experience life and have these experiences and have adventures. You know, I wanted to to try new things and I wanted to figure out who I was. And I just felt like that was not being supported, you know, um, the Christian communities around me. And I went to a Christian school, you know, I wasn't too fundamental, you know, but it was it was fundamental enough <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. Um, by by the end of college, I'd broken up with God. And and but it was also in college where I started coming out as as being queer. Um, and and also I really started embracing like these more radical progressive expressions, you know, who I was. I just wanted, I just, I just had this really bizarre experience as I got older. And that experience was, was that I was just not interested in judging people. <laughs> you know, mm, I wasn't interested in telling people how to live their lives. Um, I just didn't see why so many things were a sin. Yeah. You know, I just I, struggled with that. I just didn't get it. You know, um, and no one could argue enough for me to to bring me to their side. So, so I broke up with all of that, you know, and I graduated and I moved to Boston for the first time um, as a, you know, young 20 something. And I joined a, a community um, which was in the tradition of the Catholic worker community, which I loved, you know, the Catholic worker movement started uh, during the depression in New York by a woman named Dorothy Day and um, this man named Peter Morin. They were radical Catholics, you know, with strong faith, strong roots and in, in faith, you know, but Dorothy Day was actually a convert to Catholicism too, which was really quite interesting mm-hmm. um, in her narrative. But they were both people who believed that Jesus was teaching us to disrupt violence, right? Mm-hmm. And and they they embodied that and created a culture and a community of people living together and doing, you know, basic acts of service, you know, just right out of the Gospels. They were feeding people and clothing people and housing people. And they were also naming systems of violence, you know, and they committed themselves to disrupting those systems of violence through activism, through protest, you know, through whatever seemed peaceful for them you know, to do. And so um, I joined a community that was inspired by the Catholic worker movement and then a community that Dorothy Day herself had had um, some connections to as well. So that was all felt really special. And I became really devoted to Dorothy Day's kind of ideas and beliefs. And that really influenced me for several years. And of course, the worker movement was this, you know, Marxist and socialist anarchist movement. But it had a lot of warmth in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really gravitated towards that. And the community that I lived in and worked in, it was just so many different kinds of people. And that's what I'd been craving my whole life, just everyone. There were monks and nuns, right? There were um, sex workers. There were drug dealers. There were people experiencing houselessness, Um There were wealthy folks, right? Um, There were, you know, Catholics and Buddhists and Jews and Hindus, um, Christian science healers. I mean, it was just a wide range of diversity. And we were all there trying to help, you know, as many people as possible while trying to create community 
together. And I was so thrilled to be there. And that really challenged me to see Christians who were embodying a different way of being in the world. Um, But also what I encountered were socially engaged Buddhists for the first time. And that was even more interesting for me um, because the Buddhists looked like they were having real fun (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And And yeah, I healed a lot of trauma and violence around growing up Christian, and I really began to see Christianity in a different life. But Buddhism, really, I just saw Buddhism as something that was really about freedom and liberation. And it was a science about, you know, about the mind and the body. And that that was something that I had absolutely no idea about, but I was excited to learn. And so, you know, over some time there, you know, about after a year of living in, in the community, I you know, really started practicing meditation. Um, and I came to meditation, particularly after I really began to recognize that I was experiencing severe depression, mm. you know, and so I just opened my heart and my mind and just began to to seek ways of working with depression. Of course, meditation became one of those ways, along with some other modalities and practices. And so meditation, which was the mindfulness practice at the beginning, led to really studying and having a hunger for Buddhist philosophy. And before you knew it, I was a Buddhist. Um, And early on, I decided to train to become a teacher um, in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, um, which I found really evocative as well. Um, And I believe that it really fit my personality. Um, So, you know, and three years into practicing, I was living in a monastery, so I moved from the community went to a monastery and went into a three-year retreat um, where I sat and practiced for actually over three years. It was closer to three and a half years, you know, and finished that um, process and, you know, was given permission to teach. You know, I got the title Lama uh, and I've been teaching for about nine years so far. Well, well, first, uh, as an aside, I will note that my mother and my grandmother also grew up Methodist, and um, my grandmother lived was a very, very middle class, kind of salt of the earth Midwesterner, and went to the same Methodist church for 92 years. Wow. Um, she lived to 104, but wow. she, she, she played the bells. Um, (laughs) that was was about as animated as it got (laughs) in the Methodist church, which, you know, she was a lovely woman and I I had great respect for her, you know, um, but, but she was stifled in a way and, 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 you know, always had her, her top button buttoned. Uh, and I mean, when she turned a hundred and we actually did a slideshow, of her life. She was born in 1910. And mm-hmm. I think in started starting in about 1935, you couldn't tell the difference in how she looked for the last about 80 years of her life because, wow. you know, she was this very, very serious, austere, put together um, woman. So uh, when I hear you speak uh, about fun, <laughs> um, I don't, in uh, the sort of the opposite side of that spectrum 
uh, I would imagine my grandmother in in the Methodist Church. Um, but in terms of your um, attraction uh, to to Buddhism, and, and obviously we can't recite the entire Pali Canon here on this interview, but I wonder if you could unpack some of its central tenets, um, its general propositions around the nature of suffering and the mm-hmm. potential pathways out of it, mm-hmm. and and how that might have, um, uh, what that relationship might have been with your depression. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and these were some of the things that really drew me deeper into Buddhism because I. You know, I'd been suffering my whole life, and when I started practicing Buddhism and studying Buddhism, of course, the first teachings you get is that there's suffering, you know, <laughs> and that you're not special because you suffer. Like, that just kind of makes you human. And I was just so blown away by that, you know, that you you, you start with the hard stuff, you know. They weren't like, you know, the traditions aren't trying to get people in the door by selling the good stuff first, by promising liberation. They were like, no, no, you're suffering. You know, you're not, this isn't a figment necessarily of your imagination. This is actually happening. So if you can just accept that, then you begin the work of liberation from suffering. Um, And I was thrilled. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, I just felt victimized by suffering, particularly social oppression. I was like, I was black and queer you know, poor at the time. And I was just like, I just can't get a break, you know? Um, you know, but, you know, but in Buddhism, you know, I begin to see more and more that like, yeah, there's this tenant that there's suffering in life. Right. And of course the Buddha's first teaching was that teaching that there is suffering. And then he taught that, you know, we suffer because we crave, like there's a craving, there's an attachment to things, right? That craving creates a sense of self and I, you know, and um, what we would call you know, ego. Um, and we don't get it. There's, there's not a lot of space within that kind of fixation and attachment and craving, right? And that, that lack of space intensifies this discomfort. You know, of course, he called discomfort dukkha. Of course, this is, you know, early Buddhist language. And so dukkha, we often translate as suffering, right? Discomfort, but it's so much more subtle than that, you know? And this is why I really appreciated these teachings, um, because there are some people who are like, obviously, who say, you know, I don't suffer. You know, um, like, I don't, I have everything that I want, you know, I'm beautiful, I'm rich, you know, <laughs> I have a really good life, you know, and I've met people like that. I've met people who are just like, yeah, I've never had to struggle for anything. So I don't, maybe I don't suffer, you know, but what Duga actually is pointing our attention to is the fact that like beneath all the worldly materialism that we take pleasure in, there's another kind of experience beneath that. And that experience is the fear of this, all this being taken away, Mm, which is a correct fear because it actually will be taken away (laughs) because we will have to die, (laughs) you know? And, you know, and early Buddhism, early Dharma, and, you know, or or the Buddha was, you know, really saying that like, yeah, you're going to have to deal with that eventually, (laughs) you know? Um, And I love that, you know? 
Um, but, you know, even further, dukkha, the, a very subtle experience of dukkha is this experience of, you know, having a Tupperware, right? You have a Tupperware, you put some food in it, you put the messiest food, like pot, you know, like spaghetti sauce, you know, tomato sauce in this Tupperware, and you find a top for it, but it doesn't quite fit, you know, but it fits enough, right? And you put it in the fridge, you pack it into the fridge, and then later you come around, you open the fridge, that Tupperware pops out, that ill-fitting lid lid falls off, and all that tomato sauce splatters everywhere, all over the kitchen. That's dukkha. <laughs> I've never you know. heard that that particular analogy in all of my discussions <laughs> around Buddhism. So I'm, if nothing else, I'm happy for, <laughs> for that one. <laughs> I, I can't, yeah. I can't quite take uh, um, credit for this. Is um, actually a description that I got from one of my uh, Buddhism professors in graduate school. Mm. Um, but I gladly have taken it and expounded upon it. But um. But yeah, like I was like, oh, like that's it. Like it seems good, but it's not going to turn out, you know. Um, and of course, the, the Buddha goes on to teach that, uh, you know, if you could just relax some, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, then there's this kind of spaciousness that opens up, you know. And the spaciousness gives us the the chance, the opportunity to actually connect to the nature of this reality that we take so seriously you know and that that this reality is an illusion it's a dream you know and that this is you know as we would say back home where i grew up this world is not your home you know this is an experience right and we're practicing to have an awakening to the nature of all phenomenal reality and the, the vehicle of meditation is what drives us into that experience of awakening hmm. um and so i was thrilled <laughs> to get that you know and to begin to train in that yeah it's very hard you know it you know one of the things that buddhism does do really well is that like yeah they may tell you that suffering you know is an issue up front but they give you all this really intense profound beautiful language of what enlightenment is you know, and then they tell you, okay, it's, it may take you countless lifetimes to get there, so you might as well start now. <laughs> you know, um, so but I I really believe that, you know, I've been on this path for countless lifetimes already, and that I am really I'm really grateful for. Um, how I've been able to come back to the path of Dharma in this life and just really see very clearly the progress that I've made in this life alone, you know, um, to come out of depression, to come out of so much trauma, to kind of have this life in this year of 2020 where I'm able to feel like as if I'm thriving, yeah. you know, that I have a clarity, that I have a joy, you know, and I'm able to hold the space you know, all of this anxiety and discomfort and mystery, you know, I can hold it in my practice, you know, and it's okay. You know, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the very attractive components to Buddhism, at least for me, is the absence of uh, 
dogmatism, if you will, mm-hmm. and that for me, it feels very empirical on some level. Like it really is just a playbook to apply to your life if you are interested mm-hmm. in the investigations of, of yes. the nature of your mind and how it works. And, exactly. and how could you not be given that entire, all of reality is birthed out of your mind. <laughs> yep. But um, so I, um, a couple years ago, you co-authored a book um, with uh, Reverend Angel, Angel Kyoto Williams, um, who I know a bit and I'm a big fan of. And I'll uh, excuse myself in advance because I'm not sure I know how to pronounce Jasmine's last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, As Yasmin. So as he asked me, so I he don't even know how to pronounce her first name even, yeah, yeah. Um, called Radical Dharma. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm very interested in this philosophy or, or this notion of the interweaving of spiritual liberation mm-hmm. and, and I suppose socio-political liberation. I'm not sure if my understanding of it is, is spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always seen those components of life as a Lloyd, you know, as um, one thing. And I think it's sometimes popular um, to see one's spiritual practice um, as something highly personal that mm-hmm. gives you some degree of escape from the sully world of politics or you know socioeconomic realities but but this philosophy kind of interweaves them and to me that feels baked in to the notion of that is at the core of of much of buddhism of self-transcendence and sort of eventually being able to come to terms with the notion that you were just kind of simply a, a modification of a larger self. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder if you could take some time and kind of unpack the the nature of radical Dharma and, and maybe expound upon some of its core principles, because it feels very foundational to your work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the core principles of radical Dharma is that there's no ultimate liberation without social liberation. You know, so this really ties into, you know, what would be considered in Buddhism to be the expression of bodhicitta. You know, and so bodhicitta is this this really this this mental state, this aspiration which is really a deep concern for the well-being of others. You know, and and within this kind of like bodhicitta, you know, kind of expression, we are practicing not just to free ourselves, but to free everyone else around us, right? So this is, so bodhicitta is a collective expression, you know, and that fits right into this kind of social liberation, ultimate liberation, you know, um, arena, um, because we can practice to touch into and to acknowledge the ultimate, but we can also do what we can to make sure others are being cared for around us, right? To to work for, you know, an eradication of systems of violence. At the same time, we're working towards this ultimate enlightenment and we bind both of those efforts together, right? And so 
social liberation, you know, work, it, I think really it keeps us connected to this world because the there's a tendency for us to bypass the concerns of the world, the concerns of people to exclusively uh, tune into an ultimate view, you know, where we can bypass giving a shit mm-hmm. about the world, you know, um, this kind of extremism in terms of its relationship to the ultimate often sounds something like, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to the world because, you know, everything is non-existent, right? You know, it doesn't matter who wins the election because this is just a dream, right? It doesn't matter who gets sick because the body is just an illusion, right? That's just like bypassing the reality of the relative, you know? Um, That makes us really callous. That makes us mean, (laughs) you know, to to tell someone that, oh, don't worry if you're like struggling with violence, you know, the, you know, ultimately you're not struggling with it to begin with. So you should just like take refuge in that, you know, that doesn't, that's not really helpful, you know, Um, though I am oriented towards the ultimate, you know, um, I still understand that we earn our rights to, awakening and enlightenment through the work we're doing in the relative right we're trying to open our hearts and our minds to reveal the to to, to reveal the nature of phenomenal reality we use you know we engage in supporting and working for others to open our hearts and minds right to begin to understand that there's no separation between myself and others Um, and that makes the world much easier to be in if we can just confront the reality of living together and all the systems that create harm for us if we can just lean towards that with an openness and with an attitude to engage in trying to benefit folks trying to disrupt the violence then we find ourselves less afraid of the world right and that creates a kind of openness in the mind which at the same time makes it easier for us to touch into this kind of ultimate um, expression of everything. Mm, yeah, I think that's an interesting because I think there can be a duality that is perceived mm-hmm. between, I think, as you refer to as the the ultimate and the the relative. I guess one one might see is um, the human experience, kind of very much based in your body, mind, in mm-hmm. your personhood versus uh, the experience of life as awareness of transitory phenomena, moment to moment, et cetera. And to build not just a bridge, but in a way to see those things as conjoined, um, I think is not just important, but it, it enlarges the energetic potential of what it is like to be me basically um and um but it is uh but it is not simple um because i think you know as you know as we address things that feel oh, i guess so acute in the human 
in the, uh, things that are political that feel so painful that can make us so angry um, and, and can also make us feel, I suppose, paralyzed or almost numb in the face of their enormousness or their enormity. Um, it is easy to retreat from that world. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I wonder how you managed to maintain some degree of equanimity um, between um, a sense of peace and enlightenment that is, is necessary in your own personal life and then, I suppose, a, a kind of spiritual activism that, that is needed um, in order to, to kind of bend the arc of the moral universe. And, mm -hmm. and, and I suppose, you know, this might even be a, a slightly a bridge into, into anger and rage, because mm -hmm. to be honest, those seem so um, inextricably connected to our, our political life right now. Yeah, you know, I think for me, the key to this is this kind of awareness of space. Um, like, I have to move through the world with a lot of mental spaciousness in order not to be swallowed, particularly by the suffering of the world, this acute pain, this acute trauma. Um, that helps me maintain this balance, right? And there's there's a there, there is a balance here, you know. There, there really isn't kind of this binary experience because it's the relative and the ultimate are just one one experience, you know. But for us to to kind of start wrapping our minds around it, we have to split it up into two separate experiences. And what I'm beginning to experience in my practice is the union of both the relative and the ultimate. So as I'm moving through the world, I'm at the same time moving through the ultimate as well. You know, the, moving through the relative is moving through the ultimate. Um, and it's, it's not something that we're necessarily trying to articulate, but it's something that we're trying to live, right? You know, we're just trying to be in the world and we say, yes, you know, there's suffering. I'm going through this. There's anxiety and fear and trauma and violence. I get that, right? And I can hold a lot of space around that because it is in, indeed being held by spaciousness. Even if I tune into that reality or not, right, there's still spaciousness. So I'm trying to remember the spaciousness that's holding everything, right? And within that spaciousness, I get these glimpses of what the ultimate um, experience is, right? But I have to hold both of those experiences together because my work is it's, it's twofold, right? My work is to be of benefit to myself and others and helping people to get free. And my second work is to connect, experience the ultimate at the same time, right? You know, so I'm trying to maintain the space where both of these, these, these experiences are happening at once, you know, and that takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of, well, it takes a commitment to the trainings around watching the mind and, and really connecting to the illusion of everything, but in a way that we 
don't use that experience of the illusory nature of everything as an excuse not to care. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. we talk about right. compassion and wisdom, you know, and these are the two things we're trying to keep together that can actually help us maintain this space, right? You know, so compassion meaning ethical care, wisdom being being um, clarity. You know, I'm trying to care, you know, but I need the clarity to understand what to care about, you know, and how <laughs> yeah. to care. Yeah. You know, you know, and the same thing for wisdom too, actually. Like I I need I need a warmth, a kindness to my wisdom because wisdom can become quite alienating. It can become quite elitist. Yeah. You know, and it can it can pull us away from people and their struggle instead of 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 drawing us closer this is the work of compassion compassion draws us closer while the work of of wisdom helps us to see clearly so we don't get lost in what we're being drawn closely into yeah that's interesting i've tried to attach the notion of humility to wisdom as much as i possibly can these days um that that it really delineating in some ways between knowledge and wisdom and uh, where wisdom is more of a moral character uh and, and it's sort of an admission of actually what i don't know mm. a- and and having the clarity i suppose as you say to understand what i don't know and in a way surround myself with people and ideas and energy that really reflects an awareness of my own deficiency. And then, yeah, I mean, and then I suppose compassion, as I've kind of, because these are notions that I consistently, um, I sort of define and redefine in the context of my own life. And of um, trying to understand compassion as loving kindness in the presence of suffering Mm -hmm. in a manner that tries to alleviate that suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and I'm sure (laughs) that those definitions will continue to, Mm -hmm. to refine. But, um, but I, I, I'm interested in that space that you talk about in Mm -hmm. the beginning of your book. uh, I think you have a Viktor Frankl quote and I'm a, and, um, and I would butcher it now if I tried to to uh, to access it. But uh, but I know he addresses that notion of space, of kind of that that area between the happening of things and one's response to them. And, and I wonder if if you could unpack that, how that space is cultivated, and how that space addresses anger. Mm-hmm. and the and the care or the self-care associated with one's anger mm-hmm. yeah well that that quote from victor frankel it reads quote between stimulus and response there is a space and that space is our power to choose our response and our response lies our growth and our freedom end quote mm-hmm. so that's really the heart of really the the premise of of love and rage is that when i feel something arise you know um i don't have to to 
grab onto it. I don't have to like react to it. I can just watch it, right? And that watching disrupts the reactivity. That reactivity actually helps us to lean back into the spaciousness. And in that space, we get the opportunity to make a different choice. You know, yeah. and right now we're not able to do that because many of us are just super reacting to everything that arises in the mind. And so we feel choice. We feel as if there is no choice. There's a choicelessness, you know, to all of this. And so when I talk about spaciousness, I'm talking about that space that opens up when we are not busy and getting distracted with react reacting. Um, and including with anger, Right. Um, anger is so it's it, there's there's a seduction to anger because it's so powerful, right? There's a lot of energy, right? But that energy is a reaction to the hurt that we've experienced, you know. So in my work, I say that anger is the bodyguard for the hurt, because from my practice, I understand that my anger is first and foremost telling me that I've been hurt. Right, you know, and that I need to take care of the hurt. Um, if I don't do anything to take care of the hurt, or if I don't at least acknowledge the hurt, then I find myself reacting to anger, you know, in a, such a way that I create more harm for myself and for others. You know, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think just just even that basic of acknowledgement mm -hmm. that anger occurs as the result of being hurt mm -hmm. is essential um and i'm not sure how popular it is um right and um i read a book uh recently written by elizabeth kubler ross uh -huh. that she, she writes extensively on, on grief mm -hmm. she, i think this book was from the early 70s I think it was called On Death and Dying, and yep, she yep. Out, outlines the five stages of grief. And mm -hmm. I believe anger is, is stage number two. Yeah. And I, I remember um, that her writing very articulately about this, that anger, in a way, is a more socially acceptable way to express emotion mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as the result of being hurt. Mm -hmm. versus vulnerability mm -hmm. um, because you know I, I suppose Brene Brown is sort of bringing vulnerability into into vogue but it, it's not something that I think comes naturally to a lot of people right right absolutely um, and so I wonder if you could outline a little bit of your experience you know with with anger um because you know you write beautifully about your up uh, about growing up and about a lot of anger mm -hmm. that that you had in your life mm -hmm. um but that in many ways belies uh, how i find you which is this absolutely sort of effervescently gentle human being mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I, w I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you were able to identify that in mm -hmm. yourself mm -hmm. and uh, cultivate your gentleness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think you know, we talk about, you know, who gets a right to be angry, 
and particularly in American culture, just to say that, you know, and so in American culture, you know, I think men get to be angry, you know, and we see this over and over again in the media right now. Um, And women are conditioned not to have that same access to anger, right? Um, So there's a lot of gender conditioning around emotional expressivity or or emotional expressiveness. Uh, And, but when I was growing up, right, because this is also very intersectional because we have to actually include race and class and sexuality you know, um, into like how we're trying to understand who gets to express anger. I grew up knowing very clearly that I did not have a right to express anger as a black man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though I was, you know, I am cisgender, right. And signed birth, assigned male at birth, you know, um, I still didn't have, the privilege of expressing anger. And I saw how other black men were policed and disciplined for expressing anger. You know? Yeah. Well, to be honest, there was a section of your book that I found so um, jarring in a way that I wrote it down. I'll just read it actually, but it's very short. As a black man, I was conditioned to believe my anger was dangerous. If I channeled anger and expressed anger, then I would be punished. I would be killed. I would be put in jail. I would be silenced. I would be erased. Wow. Yeah. I saw it over and over again in in school growing up, right? You know, going to elementary school. You know, we weren't like black boys were disciplined at such a higher rate, you know. Um, Then I saw you know, white students being, you know, conditioned. And I didn't grow up with a lot of diversity either. <laughs> so it was just black and white students, mm-hmm. you know, where I grew up in the South. Um, and so, and that's what I saw really clearly. And of course you, you know, you, you look at TV, you know, and then as I got into my teens and Rodney King, like all of that, like the, this stuff began to like really get super implanted in my head. And, and of course I began to have experiences with police where I couldn't even like look police in the eye without being reprimanded and being considered a threat. And I'd learned that early on through my experiences. It was like, I was expected to keep all of that, all of my anger, all of my rage under wraps, (laughs) you know? Um, And so when I got, you know, when I was actually able to move into the community, you know, into the Catholic worker community, um, it was the elder Buddhists in the community who came to me. I remember them, both of them, Kathy and Jane came to me and they were like, you know, you're really pissed off, you know, (laughs) and I had no idea what they were talking about, you know, because I had learned to survive in the world. I had to be really passive aggressive. You know, I had to hide the anger and I thought that just manipulating people was good because that 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 was really hidden, you know, and I wouldn't be punished, you know, but they were like, no, that's that's anger. Right. And so I had to to really struggle to connect to anger. I had to allow myself to experience anger, to be angry. Right. You know, and when I did the work and of course, all this was happening in meditation. I was like, oh my God, I am pissed off. 
right? And it took even more work to learn how to experience the anger, hmm. you know? And that's really also the, the point of the book as well. It's like anger isn't wrong. We're just trying to figure out how to experience it in a way so that we can like get free and liberated and not repressed, you know, and, and shut down in the ways that anger can, can trigger for us. Um, and so I learned, you know, from my meditation practice, how to really embody anger, right. And how to give it a lot of space, you know, but I, you know, I learned early on that, yeah, the anger was actually pointing me to the hurt, the woundedness. And yeah. that's actually where I have spent an incredible amount of time with, which is tending to my hurt, my woundedness. You know, so you see that in Love and Rage. I don't know if Love and Rage is actually about anger as it is as about suffering and depression and, and trauma, because I have, I've had to spend so much time practicing around these experiences because I've been able to do that with what I, I call it brokenheartedness, you know, when I, so I've, because I've been able to work with brokenheartedness in that way, I've been able to really enter back into a relationship with my anger where there's a lot of space. There's a lot of agent agency. Like I'm not propelled through the world because I'm reacting to my anger, but my anger is there as a teacher for me. Yeah. I'm still pissed off. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I still get triggered. But the thing is, I know that, like, I'm hurt, you know, and I take care of the hurt. Then I turn back to the anger and I can consciously channel anger into something that's much more beneficial and productive than just reacting to it and creating harm for myself and others. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose one of the things that I'm interested in is if there is some degree of utility in anger mm -hmm. and how you would think about that. I mean, certainly to kind of bring it into kind of modern context, mm -hmm. we've seen a national reckoning mm -hmm. uh, with on racial justice, mm -hmm. you know, since I guess May 25th, since right. the murder of George Floyd, like mm -hmm. we haven't seen in multiple generations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this um, reckoning, I suppose, has been, kind of punctuated by a long summer of protests. And um, and I wonder if, if you see usefulness mm -hmm. um, inside of anger mm -hmm. in, in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anger is telling us that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's indicating, you know, that something's really, really off, you know. And, and when I see, you know, when I look at all the stuff that's been happening this summer, right? Um, for me, it is an expression of, on one hand, a lot of anger from, you know, from a lot of injustice, right? But I also see a lot of, you know, people, not just people of color or Black people, but all of us really struggling to make sense of this really intense experience of suffering of trauma that we actually don't know how to, uh, to be with you know and of course it comes out of course it explodes and there's that's not a judgment of that you know it's 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 a it's a recognition that there's incredible hurt for us right you know and 
this hurt is asking to be seen and worked with and tended to, right? And so the anger that we see is it's 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 calling for balance. You know. Yeah, God, you know, it's um, I'm trying to phrase this the right way, but and I'm curious to know, you know, what you think the movement for Black Lives has accomplished, mm-hmm. and and where we have fallen short. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that you just said that kind of was striking me is that if one could frame the movement for Black Lives as a reflection of the deep hurt mm-hmm. um, that there may be, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of support for it, but in a way, I, I think how could there not be universal support for it if it was able to be messaged in that light the way you just did? Yeah. Well, I you know I I think that the issue is that those who are who are living within the dominant culture, you know, and in this case, we're talking about racial justice. We're talking about white folks, right? So if you're living in the dominant culture, you maintain, you maintain that, you maintain that dominance through disembodiment, you know? So if we're disembodied, we're not that connected to the reality of suffering, of pain and trauma, right? Because the, the body is holding that experience. And so if we can maintain distance outside of the body, then we, we're not going to connect to that. And if you don't connect to the pain, you'll never be able to empathize with the struggle and the suffering of others who are being marginalized and decentered. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the issue of white supremacy. It's a deep issue that's about a lack of empathy and a lack of embodiment for white folks because white supremacy has demanded a disembodiment because how do you hold centuries and centuries of violence meant to repress people of color, you know? Um, and, and how do you continue to enjoy a culture that is derived and perpetuated by genocide and slavery, you know, and perpetual discrimination and decentering, you know, um, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of energy to do that. And of course we do it really easily by being outside of the body. Right. And so I come from a community, you know, where we were really close to the body and we were really close to the trauma, you know? Um, And it's those of us who are close to the trauma, close to the body who will be the ones who will liberate all of us, including the oppressor from these systems of violence, right? You know, because it's it's through being close and empathizing with our discomfort that we we understand the discomfort of others around us. Can you have true, profound empathy without embodiment? No, you know, because it's performative, right? Mm-hmm. So embodiment doesn't always mean that I'm really in my body and my experience, right? It can mean also that I'm, I'm oriented towards the body as well, because honestly, not all of us are going to get embodied <laughs> in, <laughs> in our life, you know, because it's just the reality. There's, there's just a level of trauma for some of us that will never be okay for us. 
to be with. But we can still say, you know what, I'm still going to be in relationship to the body, you know, and that can that can be a lot to work with in terms of empathy. You know, you can say, God, you know, my body's full of trauma. There's a lot of pain there. And I'm, I'm trying to like be in relationship to that. I'm not quite in it, but I know it's there and I feel a little bit of it. I wonder what others are experiencing themselves, mm-hmm. you know, um, that opens up a lot of space. Yeah. So as a white person, mm-hmm. one can do the work to cultivate a, deg- a, a true degree of empathy mm-hmm. through some form of embodiment, even though one can always, as a white person, step out of that reality. Right. Uh, and because I think this is, to be honest, a, a place of confusion for for white people um not just from a sense of like well what is my role in this and and what should i say but more from how do i truly cultivate empathy and compassion yeah yeah you know um turning back towards again like this experience of of trauma right you know but there's also not just turning back but it's also the studying that we have to do we have to understand why we're doing this at the same time we have to understand the histories of what we're we're trying to work through um the legacies of what we're trying to work through as well um you know, it's it's hard to do this work when you're just swimming in a sea of dominance. You're swimming in a sea of a lot of of comfort. Mm. You know that that's what we're up against, right? You know, you're swimming in the sea of deep deep comfort, and therefore, you there has to be a lot of effort to decenter comfort. You know, and to begin to see that when you're uncomfortable, that is actually a doorway deeper into this sense of empathy. You know, like we we can use these experiences of discomfort to say, oh, you know, this is my discomfort. And this is where so many marginalized people are living in this moment. And this discomfort that they have no agency to to bypass, you know, but knowing also the system of white supremacy will suck us back into comfort. You know, um, I think initially so much of this work is performative, which which means that like we're just kind of going through the motions and we're doing things because that's where many of us have to start if we're, you know, centered and dominant, you know, within culture. We just kind of have to start with like just going through a checklist, you know, that will create more of the conditions for us to authentically begin to connect to the yeah. discomfort, you know. But there's also the reality that there's time, like we, there's just going to take time that this work isn't just going to happen, you know, in a week or within a year that this is like lifetimes, you know, um, that we're engaging in. So white supremacy, patriarchy, anything like that, it won't be disrupted now. Like we won't ever see in our lifetime, we won't ever see the end of white supremacy, 
but maybe we begin this work. We teach our kids to do this work. They teach their kids to do this work. We begin to shift society so that this becomes part of the conversation and the education that we're beginning to do collectively. Then over a course of a couple of generations, we will see something really significant yeah. happening. Do you feel like there has been some progress made over the last six months? Does it give yeah. you optimism or, mm-hmm. or, and, um, and then I suppose, you know, I've, I've read some of your reactions to the, the results of the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. I mean, here we are, I think it's, it's today, Tuesday, mm-hmm. um, two, <laughs> recording exactly two weeks yeah. yeah recording two weeks um you know um before the, this next election and yeah. god only knows when we'll actually uh determine the result um but uh, you know i, I wondered you know clearly one can look at the the candidates in this particular election and find significant differences between them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose on a meta level, do you see these choices as very narrow goalposts or or pretty wide, um, you know, in, in regards to really dismantling the systems and structures of, of white supremacy? Yeah, you know, I think for me, it's a matter of harm reduction. Um, <laughs> so it's not like I get, I have this really radical choice that I'm making. You know, I don't see, it's not this, you know, complete opposite, you know, kind of candidate that I'm, you know, voting for in terms of like Biden. But what I am interested in is making a choice to reduce as much, as, as much harm as possible right now you know, and slowly beginning to do this work to dig our way out of this. Um, And I think that we're still having to be committed to, you know, even if Biden wins and Kamala Harris wins, we're still committed to the work because we are in a situation where white supremacist terrorism is super activated now, you know, um, and the work will just continue, you know, and hopefully we'll have an administration that who is, you know, committed to supporting us in the country and federal government and so forth and doing this work of dismantling white supremacy. Um, But the thing also that's happening is that, you know, there's a deep disruption to the systems that we've been relying on, you know, to our financial systems, to capitalism, you know, in particular. And that's going to have an impact on, you know, these other structures and institutions in our country, you know. So things may have to crash more for us to have the spaciousness to actually really rebuild things, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, it's perplexing to me because, um, as I look at the constant undermining of the institutions that have provided 
our democracy with stability, often at the expense of justice and equality, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, some degree of stability, you know, uh, journalism and media, science and medicine, uh, government, uh, and this kind of constant drone of, you know, fake news or anti-Fauciism or mm -hmm. I'm leading the government, but I'm actually not really part of it. You know, um, all of the, those kind of tropes that are echoed, you know, by Trump, you know, over and over again, um, you know, certainly could, um, I sort of propel a more radical thinker to, to believe that like, okay, well, this is just part of tearing down all of these systems and structures that really have just, um, uh, you know, propagated, a, you know, injustice over generations. Mm -hmm. Or then there's the other side of like, well, liberal democracy is actually pretty decent, you know, <laughs> as it seems to be the best form of government that we've discovered. And there's certainly many warts on it, but to discard it is, is to maybe throw the baby out with the bathwater. So it's, it's a very complicated equation right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we may not even get a choice. Yeah. You know, like things may indeed just like completely crash, you know, and then we're in a post-apocalyptic world, which we're teetering on the edge of. Yeah. You know, it only takes the stock market crashing, <laughs> you know, um, for us to see that, you know. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's like this reformism isn't really what's going to get us free, you know. Yeah. I, I wonder from just a pure self-care perspective, how you might counsel people mm -hmm. in this time, yeah. uh, given that um, the uncertainty is not a friend of the conceptual mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, you have to start making friends with uncertainty. <laughs> then, um it's, it's yeah it's not a threat <laughs> of the mind but listen it's there you know so it's just like you might as well invite uncertainty in to have a seat at the table um and that's part of my self-care really is that like i'm just actually inviting everything to be at the table right now all the fear the anxiety the uncertainty you might as well just be here i just i want to see it and i want to name it because I want to have agency over it. And I can't do that if I'm always running away from it, right? It's the same thing with anger. Like I can't keep running away from it if I want to be in a liberatory relationship with it. Um, you know, and so, you know, even further than that, you know, when I'm really, when I'm taking care of myself or trying to, you know, sitting with others and, and self-care, it's really, you know, we, we have to create the space you know, to, to understand what it is that is restorative for us, even during times of an apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, we have to remember that we need rest. We have to remember that we need food. We have to remember, you know, that we have to clean ourselves, like really basic things that I think are lost, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, people are forgetting to do like you forget there's so much anxiety that you don't have an appetite, you know, or, you know, it's just you, you just bypass basic self-care things and you just have to keep doing the basics. Um, and then we look at, at the world and we say, you know what? For me, of course, my my foundation and my trust and faith comes out of, of, of Buddhism and of Dharma. So from my perspective, right, you know, I look at the world and I say, ah, you know, the world is doing what it's supposed to do, which is fall apart, you know, because that is the nature of impermanence. Things are always changing. But I also really believe and have faith that, like, I have faith in the goodness of people. Quite honestly, right? And I believe that we are moving towards a more virtuous experience. Like we're moving back towards goodness. Um, but we have to go through the pain of recognizing how far we've gotten away from this virtue. You know, or we can argue here in America, like maybe we've never actually been a virtuous country, given the fact that. America was founded on the land from the genocide of indigenous Native Americans and from the labor of African slaves. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, we didn't really start on a good foot, actually. <laughs> no. no. Um, and our country is driven by perpetual discrimination. You know, um, so we actually are on a quest to actually maybe for the first time discover like what our, our what our virtue is. And telling the truth is the first step towards that virtue. You know, telling the truth that like, yeah, this is how America was founded. Like, and these are the systems that perpetuate inequality. Right. Um, we have to tell the truth that everyone doesn't have what they need. You know, we have to tell the truth that, like, we're actually quite a mean country. Mm. You know, like, you know, it's, we, we're this supposedly Christian-valued country, but we don't want everyone to have health care. You know, um, which is directly in line with the teachings of Christ. <laughs> he was a healer, as far as I remember. Well, you know, as far as according to the book, he was a healer, yeah. but maybe not the made-for-TV movie that we tend to be, like, referencing instead of the actual text, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's I mean, what is that, where does that meanness come from? Like, you know, and we have to, you know, then we begin to interrogate the role of a capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy, the ways in which these systems have co-opted a deep empathy, concern, and compassion for the well-being of others. Yeah. And, well, I suppose that telling the truth is a practice in and of itself, which I think you codify as part of radical dharma. Um, do you see your legacy, and I know that that's sort of a big word, given that you're still quite young, um, but, but now that you kind of are sort of, I would say in the throes of your creative prowess, um, is, is your legacy about instantiating the virtue and goodness 
back into the world? Mm-hmm. I would say that the virtue never left. Um, but we have turned our attention away from it, I would say. Right. Um, but I would say, yes, I am. I'm concerned with what it means to express goodness. You know, to express goodness that isn't necessarily informed by systems of power and abuse. Like, what does it mean to care about people? What does it mean to care for ourselves? How do we do that individually? How do we do that as a collective? You know, and there's a way in which I I, want to simplify this in a way. It's like, if people need food, we should give people food. Like if people need health, health care. I mean, this isn't like, like, I don't, I'm not making this up. This is just from the Bible, right? You know, um, like if you give people, if people are hungry, give people food. If they need housing, give people housing. If they need health care, give people health care, right? And as someone who, you know, I'm not like poor anymore, but I'm like pretty like in the middle class at this point. And my, you know, and my work, right, as a teacher, which I'm really grateful for. But even in this position, I am more than willing to offer what I can to make sure everyone in this country has what they need. But the problem is there are people who have much more than what they need, yeah. you know. And so that that's not when we have more than what we need and we're not willing to share this. That's not virtuous. That's not goodness. Yeah, and I suppose it's capitalism has a tendency to sanctify individualism Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a feeling of separateness such that what one has, there's a scarcity around that. Um, And it doesn't connect the notions of self-interest and the collective good which i believe inevitably are one in the same thing mm-hmm. um, but certainly when you're working within a system that generally treats people as transactional right. units right. Um, it, it is very difficult to kind of instantiate that notion of of collective good and, and and even that even those words collective good mm-hmm. get kind of cubbyholed into some sort of marxism socialism yeah, exactly. communism thing you can't even really have a discussion about it uh, which is um becomes becomes quite you know frustrating um i, I guess i'll just you know maybe finish here which is kind of trying to come back really to the path out of suffering within the Buddhist um, tradition, mm-hmm. which which I always associate with the Eightfold Path. Right. And, and, and if you see that path as kind of layered pretty directly on top of your work mm-hmm. in, in a socio-political way. Absolutely. Right. You know, because the Eightfold Path is really about what is appropriate for us to do. And so in my practice, I define appropriate as anything that reduces violence. 
you know, um, so we're talking about doing what is appropriate for work. We were saying what's appropriate, you know, um, like we're having the appropriate attitude and the appropriate diligence and effort, you know, so we look at our lives and we say, what is it that I should be doing to reduce harm for myself and others? And whatever I do to do that is actually what is appropriate in the moment, you know? Um, and that's so much, I mean, that is, that's, these are the guiding principles of my work because my basic ethic, ethic is the reduction of violence, right? And so it's understanding what violence and harm is and then making choices to reduce that. But it doesn't mean that like I'm, I'm necessarily going to erase violence 100% because that's actually quite impossible to do. We're always going to impact people in harmful ways, even in ways we actually don't even understand or know about, right? Um, you know, these are just, these are the questions that I am writing about in my next book, you know, you know, these, these, this ethic of, of nonviolence and what it means to be actually good. You know, what does goodness mean? What does virtue mean? You know, like what's appropriate for us, right? How do we understand what a a harm reductionist ethic is, you know, for us? Oh, we that's have a, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a window into a book that I want to I want to read. <laughs> I, I, I am writing it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Please write quicker, um, <laughs> because yeah, I mean, this is what consumes, to be honest, much of my time, which is like, you know, what are the structures of ethics and morality? Like, where are they going to come from? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, particularly as as we enter sort of a, a a more religiously disaffiliated world, um, and uh, and and you know what are these primary notions of goodness, and, and how do we we connect to them? So I'm yeah. I'm very excited. Um, I, I I will say I'm I'm new to your work, pretty new, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, and I find it so eloquent. Um, I love your writing, and uh, and I'm a snob about <laughs> writing. <laughs> um, and, and so I am very uh, I'm grateful for it um, because just the turns of phrase um, and the articulation have a way of landing, mm-hmm. not just in my head, but uh, kind of in my spirit so i'm very appreciative for that and for the and for the work that you're doing thank you appreciate that thanks for listening to my conversation today with lama rod owens to keep abreast of his work go to lamarod.com. And of course, please email me anytime with questions or feedback at jeffk at onecommune.com. And you can always make my mom proud by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. (laughs) 